Welcome to The Math of You, a podcast about formative media from when we were young. I'm Lucas Brown. On this, our 16th episode, I'll be speaking to Annie Creighton, co-host of The Gem Jam and I Will Fight You, about role models from her childhood and how Skeletor is living his best life. Along the way, we'll discuss the difference between driven and crotchety, how a dragon can live entirely on Cherry's Jubilee, and what exactly, if anything, makes a dog a good dog. We'll finish the show with our signature cocktail and let you know how you can become a guest on The Math of You. We join this conversation already in progress. As I was walking through a life one morning, the sun was out, the air was warm, but oh, 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 I was cold. And though I must have looked a half a person, tell the tale in my own version, it was oh, oh, only then that I felt whole. Do you believe in something beautiful and For those who may not know you, why don't you tell us who you are and what makes you, in the words of Chris Haley, a beautiful and unique snowflake? (laughs) Okay. Well, I am Annie Creighton. Most of my stuff on the internet is me podcasting. I am a co-host of two podcasts that I do with Mac Weaver and Kit Walker. We do The Gem Jam, which is a weekly episode-by-episode recap of the 1980s cartoon Gem and the Holograms, which is about glam rock and mad science. And Shangri-La. And Shangri-La, where magic is real. And it breaks me. We also talk about the IDW comic of the same name that started about 2015 and is still going strong. There's going to be a spinoff that runs concurrently with it soon. Yay. Oh my gosh. We also do another podcast called I Will Fight You, which is a little harder to describe, but it's ended up being mostly about movies and our opinions about said movies. It's a little bit recap. It's a little bit narrative analysis, but mostly it's just us having a whole lot of fun talking about how bees can sense royalty. (laughs) I have. I've had kid on previously and we did specifically talk about the peace consents royalty thing because I was sitting folding laundry like with the podcast on as I do and I had to stop and put my head in my hands and just sort of laugh and, and cry into my head yes. it, it was amazing it's so good <laughs> so Star Trek apparently you sent Kit a whole bunch of text messages during your watching of the search for Spock yeah and, and it broke her that so. movie made me so mad <sighs> Oh, sorry, I'm distracted now. I could easily just talk about your podcast for a while. It's such a waste. Um, <laughs> it's such a waste. It's such, it's such a waste of a perfectly good Christopher Lloyd. <laughs> anyway. Oh, see, I, just, I was going to say, in the ditch already. We're not even a few minutes in. <laughs> okay, so, so Annie, let's start with the basics. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Columbus, Indiana. Indiana is, for those of you not familiar with the United States, it is right below, at the very, it's right below Lake Michigan. My hometown is about five hours drive from Chicago. Columbus is in the southern part of Indiana, where it's actually kind of hilly because the glacier pushed all the land that way. And it's also one of the architectural capitals of the United States. Said with excellent enunciation. What makes it such a capital? Well, in the words of John when I first took him there, John, my husband, all of the churches look like firehouses and all the firehouses look like schools. (laughs) 
Okay, so now I now I just want to drill down into that. So it's like, okay, what era of school? Because there's the <laughs> like brick schoolhouse. Mm-hmm. There's the yeah, terrifying that. taupe seventies building. Yeah. There's the nineties. Hey, we're gonna make it artistic school. Uh, uh, industrial artistic, but yeah, check. There you go. Yeah, I'm thinking of, I went to university at the University of Ottawa, which was, it's a very tiny campus, Mm -hmm. but every building on that campus was built at a different time with a different (laughs) goal in mind. Nice. So you have the arts building with its like suspended teaching theater in between two other buildings. Mm -hmm. And you have the engineering building, which looks like it's hammered together out of cinder blocks. And then you have, uh, I think it's the theater building, which looks like it should be the set of a sitcom set at a high school in 1978. That sounds spectacular. It is in in a very specific type of way. <laughs> Columbus is, I, I don't know exactly how it started, but they ended up like doing a initiative where they brought in a whole bunch of different architects from, uh, from lots of different projects to construct a lot of things. Mostly our churches are what are most unique. I forget exactly how many there are, but for example, uh, one of the churches in town, and this is in the middle of the Bible Belt, of course, so there are multiple churches, many, many, many churches, was designed by the same guy that designed the St. Louis Arch is one of the bigger ones. Okay. Yeah. In a nutshell, Annie, what sort of kid were you? I was a weird kid. Big surprise. (laughs) What particular flavor of weird were you? I was the kid who read a whole lot of books for fun, like a whole lot of books. And I was really into playing like imaginary games, like making up stuff, like baby's first role play, baby's first LARP, (laughs) I guess. And I also, I was always kind of like introverted tendencies. So I always had to like go hang out by myself to recharge, though I've always been a little extroverted socially. So I didn't really have a whole lot of close friends. But like, man, most of my friends in elementary school for a while were boys because the girls always wanted to play house and that, and I would rather be a dinosaur. (laughs) And really, wouldn't we all? Wouldn't we? I should have tried to marry the two and have Dinosaur Housekeeper. I mean, they had a whole sitcom about that. I was going to say, so somewhere Ryan K. North just looked up because he felt a chill go up his back. <laughs> so apart from, apart from dinosaurs, what sort of things was young Annie reading? A lot of fantasy, which, again, probably not a big surprise. I was the weird little <laughs> girl that liked dragons. I'm still a weird old woman that likes dragons. I read a whole bunch of fantasy books. I was really into like the middle grade sci-fi stuff too, like Animorphs. I was reading a whole lot of fantasy that was above my pay grade for a long time. Like I read The Hobbit in maybe fourth or fifth grade. And at the tail end of elementary school, I was making my way through Fellowship and Two Towers, which to this day, I still don't know how I did that because I can't actually get through the Fellowship of the Ring now. When the movies came out, I decided, because I, I read The Hobbit as well, but I, I couldn't get through the Fellowship when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And so I thought when the movies came out, I'm like, I need to put my money where my mouth is. So I got some secondhand paperback versions and read my way through. And I entirely skipped the Fellowship and did not feel the lack. Yeah, yeah, I mean... I, I have a tremendous amount of respect for Tolkien. As a as an English major, you learn to have a tremendous amount of respect for writers whose work you don't really enjoy. But man, I can't get through Fellowship. I appreciate I appreciate everything that Tolkien did and all of the outrageously detailed linguistic stuff that he did. But man, that is Lord of the Rings is not my cup of tea. <laughs> well, I was going to say, what was your cup of tea then? Like, what was your antidote to that? Gosh, now I'm going to have, you, you know, you've caught me in the wrong room for my young adult shelf. <laughs> this is all comics and reference books in here. 
I mean, I, I just read voraciously as a kid to the point where there's a lot that I don't remember. Actually, Dragonlance. Oh. I was all over pop fantasy as a kid. <laughs> as someone who had to shelve the Dragonlance shelf in a, in a Borders when oh I was my. 24, uh, I can understand because there were many, many of those books. There were so many. I got like a huge collection of garage sale ones. And I couldn't even read half of it, really. Once, for a long time, my favorite book was, uh, not Draconian Measures. I think Kang's Regiment. It was about, the Draconians were like the dragon people. And it was Mm -hmm. about a group of those after the big war from, like, the main books that, like, went off and found female Draconian eggs so they could actually continue their society. And they mostly got drunk and built bridges because they were engineers. (laughs) And somehow ended up in Columbus, Indiana. Yeah. And churches built by dragons. Exactly. So when we originally set up this podcast, you said you wanted to talk about childhood heroes. But you said your childhood heroes weren't specifically ones that you think others would identify with. So do you want to speak a little to that? Yeah. So like, and when I had suggested that, I had thought that I had better record of this. So I had to sort of go back and redo some. Was When I was younger, I used to make a whole lot of lists of characters or people that I identified as heroes, which in retrospect was probably better to better to put them as people I admired or characters I admired or role models was probably the best term. I don't know about heroes in 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 retrospect, but like I kind of cherry picked a lot of characters that I felt resonated with me because when I was growing up, the kind of media that I was into was all like really action adventure oriented. And a lot of that wasn't really geared towards a, you know, a more tomboyish, to use the term, girl who wasn't super into pink because I was really against that as a little kid in a really virulent way that didn't really didn't really have a good point. Buttercup was one of the few characters I could identify with when I was younger because she, like, wore green and not pink and was really into fights and had a temper and couldn't always get along with people. That was stuff that I that I could actually see reflected in myself. Yeah, I think specifically the fact that she could e- easily show her anger without yeah. consequence. The yeah. story didn't punish her for being angry at a situation that would legitimately make her angry. Yeah, and she had superpowers where she could just punch real good. She didn't get to talk <laughs> to squirrels or have ice breath, though. Uh, well, that's a shame. Yeah, or Spanish. I was going to say, or or Spanish. Yeah, Bubbles could speak Spanish and squirrel. (laughs) You know what I just realized? I just realized when you said buttercup, I crossed to the Princess Bride buttercup. (laughs) Then when you said Spanish and squirrel, I went, oh, wait, Powerpuff Girls. Yeah, I probably should have stated that outright. (laughs) That's okay, shifting mental gears. Oh, man, oh, man, though, Princess Bride was such a huge movie for me as a kid my first real crush was carrie always in that i think you're not alone i think a lot of people's first crush now was it dread pirate pirate roberts carrie always or was it farm boy tussled hair throwing hay around oh my god that first shot where like the sun hits him just right and his hair is kind of over his eye and he's like as you wish oh my god he has that bishonen sparkle oh my god (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the Dread Pirate Robert stuff is just icing on the cake. It's by the way, you know, it, was it get you a man who can do both? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So good. My mom got that out of the library along with a bunch of boring movies when I was in grade four, 
And it was the one I remembered because I blocked out most of Out of Africa and <laughs> Sarah Plain and Tall and other such classics. But I remembered The Princess Bride real good. And then I got to grade eight and I had moved to a different school, as is my want. And I was talking to people and someone did the No More Rhymes, I Mean It, Anybody Want a Peanut? And my head snapped up like a dog that's just heard a whistle. And I'm like, these, these people will be my friends. <laughs> Yeah, I was that way somehow with, with Monty Python and the Holy Grail. That was, like, the movie to just put on all the time when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. And, like, I remember getting the DVD for the first time and being like, oh, that's what the entire title card says. <laughs> I couldn't read that before. Yeah, the DVD was a, had, like, a ton of extras and stuff. I remember that. It was actually one of the first DVDs I bought. Yeah, same. But it had that, like, lithographic, holographic cover because no one had decided what a DVD case should look like yet. Yeah. And so it wouldn't quite fit on a shelf. <laughs> And it was, I remember because it was in the packaging and it looked like the boards that the monks were hitting themselves with. Oh, and wow. And I'm like, that, that's cool. I'm not keeping that. <laughs> God, Monte by the Holy Grails to the point where, like, I can't actually, I don't know if I can physically recite it anymore. I think you get to a certain, like, breaking point with it. Yeah. It's like, it's like well, with little kids where you retell the first joke that you learn. You tell it over and over again to the point where you become physically incapable of telling it anymore. <laughs> See, now i got to ask, what was the first joke? Oh, God, it was this garbage joke that I didn't even really understand, but it, but it elicited some kind of funny response from my dad. It was based on some song whose refrain was deep in the heart of Texas. Oh, and... oh, oh, uh, the stars at night are big and bright, deep in the heart of Texas. You know it and I don't. I don't know the song. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm Canadian. I have no excuse. Yeah. And it was somehow about a kid's whose name was Texas, and then somehow somebody stabbed someone, and someone asked, where is the knife? And they said, deep in the heart of Texas. Yeah. That, that's good. No, I'll pay that. That's, that's pretty good. I mean, I suppose it has a bit more nuance than, aren't you glad I didn't say banana? Oh, that, that was a good one, though. Mm -hmm. I, I, I got good mileage out of that one. Oh, don't we all? See, now I'm just trying to think. And just all of these variations on these sort of storytelling jokes that usually involved a hotel room and a repetition three times of a line, and the third time is when it makes sense. And it's like hearing hearing a line and not getting it, hearing a line and not getting it, having the context and suddenly understanding it. The only one I can remember, and I don't even remember the lead up, I just remember the punchline was opening a toilet and there are three ants on a piece of poop singing, if the log rolls over, we will die, die, die. And that's all I remember. And I'm very sorry I brought it up. That's like, oh my god, that, that sounds somehow familiar though. Um, hmm. That sounds like this one that I, I know about elephants. Okay. Okay, so how many elephants fit into a minivan? How many? Four. How do you know if there's been an elephant in your, in your kitchen? Is it the footprints in the butter? Yeah, how do you know if there's been two elephants in your kitchen? How? There's two footprints in the butter. How do you know if there's been three <laughs> elephants in your kitchen? Oh. There's three footprints in the butter. How do you know ah. if there's been four elephants in your kitchen? Is there is there four footprints in the butter? No, there's a minivan in the driveway. <laughs> oh, you're a monster. You're a monster. <laughs> oh, I hate you so much right now. <laughs> <sighs> okay, we've completely lost the topic. <laughs> so... Childhood role models, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Please go on. Okay. So one of my one of my first ones, one of my first big ones was was Calvin from Calvin and Hobbes, which oh, is yes. a comic that I read obsessively as a kid. We had all the collections mm -hmm. and like as soon as they came out, my parents bought me and my brother each a copy of the huge hardback ones. Ooh, that's nice. 
Calvin was always one of those characters that he had a huge imagination, which was something that I really loved. He was brash and willful where I couldn't be. He had, I mean, he had a best friend that was a giant tiger. And what's not to love about that? Yeah, I think the tiger thing really resonated with me because we, I grew up with, with big dogs for a while. And there's a specific pleasure of having, like, uh, we had Rottweilers. And so having a Rottweiler that's 140 pounds sleep on your bed and then getting into your bed as a little kid and trying to put your feet under him and they would stay warm and then they'd fall asleep. Oh, my goodness. And you would goodness. have this, like, pre-warmed bed thanks to the dog, who was technically not allowed to be on that bed, but I, ne- <laughs> I never told on him. <laughs> I remember coming home in the middle of in the middle of the school day once for lunch because I lived, like, a block away from my high school. And I come in and I look over... And there's our dog on the couch, and she is curled up in this little ball, and I know that she's not supposed to be on the couch. She obviously knows she's not supposed to be on the couch, and we sort of exchange a glance, and I just sort of nod and (laughs) don't say anything. Coming back to Calvin, I find that a lot of people who have read Calvin and Hobbes when they were young, as we did, obviously bring a lot more to it reading when they're adults. So what's the comparative experience for you? It's the same sort of thing that I get from watching like Hocus Pocus as an adult in that when you're a kid, you really identify with all of the things that don't seem fair about being a kid, about being young. And when you read it as an adult, first off, a lot more of the words make sense. Well, there's that. Yeah. You know who Kierkegaard is, for example. Exactly. And then there's the fact that, like, Calvin's parents are incredible because, first off, when I was little, my parents resembled Calvin's to an uncanny degree. (laughs) So your dad had the glasses and your mom had the brown bob haircut? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Practically same shade on the Sundays. Oh, wow. <laughs> and and so as an adult, you actually come back and you really admire a lot of the stuff that the adults do. You actually start to sort of see the picture come together. Still, as an adult, think to yourself, man, he really wasn't doing something good with Uncle Max. I can see why Uncle Max didn't come back. Yeah, also he couldn't call Calvin's parents by their names, so that kind of limited what he could say. It was just bro, and what was he going to call Calvin's mom? Hey you, or oh hey, or something to that effect. Yeah, just didn't work. (laughs) Nope. So he went to the same place as Lyman from Garfield. Exactly. He went to the basement. (laughs) Never came back. Oh my god, they're both like mustachioed men with large noses. (gasps) Oh my god, you're right. Have they ever been in the same room together? Ooh. All right, so you're writing this. (laughs) Actually, I I think Grant Morrison may have written it already at some point. They're in limbo with all those people in Animal Man. Oh, probably. (laughs) Somewhere in the back, it's two mustachioed men sharing a cup of coffee. One of them laments about his lost dog. (laughs) It was my dog, you know. My dog first. There, there's a bunch that I ended up bookmarking because I, the thing is that I have a very good visual memory, so I remember a lot of these things really well. So at a point, I just sort of had to start flipping through those big hardback volumes when I had them in college and like figuring out which ones I actually wanted to touch on because I ended up writing this paper in in college in like my senior year, which was bullshitting my way through the... Oh, by the way, I should ask, what is our language rating on here? F-bombs are plenty. Go for it. Okay, cool. We have earned our explicit tag many times over. <laughs> I ended up bullshitting my way through this English paper, as you do, mm-hmm. that was about Freud's paper on the Unheimlich, the uncanny, as well as going into doppelgangers and looking at doppelgangers in particular in variations in Calvin and Hobbes, like looking at Calvin's first clone, uh, Calvin's set of clones, good Calvin the clone, and then Hobbes himself. 
Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> this sounds really good. Man, I got an A on that paper. I was proud of that thing. Crushed it. Yeah. Thinking of the good clones, it's just the idea that having a, a bad thought and becoming more like Calvin caused the clone to evaporate. Yeah. But then any clone that he brought forth that was exactly like him had the same bad qualities and they would just end up fighting, which I think is a bit more how it would be like if you had, like, although we now know that a clone wouldn't have your experiences because they'd be grown from, grown from a tube, uh, but if you had, like, a, an exact duplicate of yourself, I think you would just get on each other's nerves all the oh, time. Oh, yeah. I mean, that was, though I have to say that was one of the refreshing parts about that Gravity Falls episode with, with the clones because mm-hmm. they just instantly were like, oh, come on, Dipper, we, we both know what's going to go on here. Also, you know what name I've always wanted to be called? Tyrone. <laughs> or oh God, or the, the end of the Scott Pilgrim movie where him and Nega Scott just decide to like meet up and get pancakes because they both like blueberry syrup. Ah, the Scott <laughs> Pilgrim movie. Yeah. Let's not, talk, let's not fall down that particular rabbit hole. Yeah. <laughs> That's a whole separate bullshit English paper. Yes, indeed. So my favorite bullshit English paper that I turned in was... Actually, there were two. It was a tie. I had one for a Greek mythology class where we were doing the Odyssey, and I decided on a complete whim to just go through and essentially pick out all the misogynist themes in it. Oh, wow. You'd be there for hours. I know, right? It was the easiest paper I ever wrote because it was basically <laughs> just a screed, right? Like It was. It would have been on Medium where I to release it today. And... Yeah, I got like a B plus on a class I had not been to in quite a while because I just went through going that one, that one, that one. Oh, this monster is is female. Oh, how surprising. And tied for it, though, was in my modern and contemporary religious movements class, which was a really good class that I took that was not part of my degree, Mm -hmm. but it was the best mark I got because for my final paper, I rented a whole bunch of science fiction movies from the 70s till then it was the early 2000s and did modern religious themes in science fiction and, and just basically went from, you know, Christopher Reeve, Superman, Flash Gordon, Superman 4, Buck, uh, Buck Rogers. Like I, I just went through all of them and just wrote down everything I, anything I could find. Interesting. Were you mostly going for, like, Christ allegories at that point? I mean, Pretty mentioning much, yeah. Superman brings that to mind. Yeah, totally. And and even, the, again, I'm looking back and thinking, yeah, this pretty much was a Tumblr post. But everything from the crystalline heaven that was Krypton, and uh, actually a, a big chunk of it was Nuclear Man as a fallen angel figure. Wow, I would read that. <laughs> oh, thank you. But yes, I got good marks, and it was one of the few good marks I got in university because I was in the wrong degree. But mm-hmm. the important thing is I tried. Yeah. Definitely. Okay, so what were some of the other role models that you had when you were a kid? Uh, Scrooge McDuck was a big one that ended up actually deepening the older I got. Oh, really? Because as a kid, I was just like, wow, DuckTales is really cool. Scrooge reminds me a lot of my grandpa if he, w- if he was more nice, if he was <laughs> less of a crotchety old bastard. <laughs> and also Scottish. And also a duck. Yeah, you know. And also decided to be a duck who didn't have to wear pants. <laughs> I do like that you listed it as attributes, Scottish comes before duck. Oh, yeah. I mean, they're all ducks. It's like how you can't have a, a green little house. It has to be a little greenhouse. <laughs> have you read much of the of the comics? Well, see, that's the thing. America hasn't really gotten a whole lot of the duck comics over the years. So I discovered those later on because, like, I had a really long time when I wasn't really reading comic books that much. And then I started to discover, oh, wait a minute. I can read comic books about things that aren't extreme 90s superheroes. 
which who would want to do that? Right. Except Chris Sims. Nashville, that well, that's his mo. And I ended up picking up the Life of Times of Scrooge McDuck, which is oh a, yes, yeah, which is like Happy a hands. <laughs> which is like this huge retelling of from what I was understanding from it, because again, we don't get duck comics in the states, so there's a whole context I've missed there of like a whole bunch of Scrooge adventures and also filling in gaps in all the stuff that I guess Scrooge mentioned over the years of what he did. And this is something that I've talked to, I've talked to Jake about as well, is that one of the things that Scrooge does is that when he's a little kid, one of the first lessons his dad and his uncle ever teach him is that he worked really hard as a shoe shiner and he got a bum penny that was, he got a bum dime. It was an American dime in Scotland, which is of course worthless to a little kid. And he decides right then and there that instead of, you know, let me get one sec. I'm just going to grab that and make sure I Go get this quote right. Life is filled with tough jobs and there will always be sharpies to cheat me. Well, I'll be tougher than the toughies and sharper than the sharpies and I'll make my money square. Yes. Ugh, it's still so good. It's so good. That's so good. And it makes, and it like sets the pace for his entire life so well. And it's, I, I love it. I love this character of Scooch McDuck, this guy who has worked so horrifically hard to make all of his money, has become a crotchety old bastard along the way. So I guess the parallels to my grandfather aren't that out of the way. <laughs> and yet he is someone who is, over the years, had this extreme devotion to his family and made sure that he's spending his money by actually doing it with the people that he loves. Yeah, the, the goal is not money for money's sake. For all that he has an entire building full of it. Yeah. That he swims in. Exactly. I, I remember one of the first time I read that, it recontextualized Scrooge as, because he's, especially in some of the early DuckTales things, he's really quite villainous. And, I mean, he's named after Ebenezer Scrooge for a reason. Mm -hmm. And the idea of, okay, well, he's not a villain. He has a particular viewpoint, and that is what leads to everything that character does. And also, it's a really cool line. Yeah. And he's just, it's always adventure stories. And I have always loved just adventure stories, world, just globetrotting stuff, seeing everything. It's, I, I, I just, I, I enthusiastically love Scrooge McDuck. He's so good. <laughs> That's okay. You're allowed. However, since, since I did it over a weekend to play the DuckTales NES game, I now just wonder why he doesn't travel everywhere using his cane as a pogo stick. Because it's faster. Because get around. Boing, it's faster. Boing, boing, boing. It is faster. <laughs> Also, I've gone back and listened to some of the music from that game and the, the African Minds theme and the Moon theme. They're all really good. Man, like I, I didn't actually play. We didn't have the DuckTales game when I was little. So the first time I played it was when I was playing a couple of hours of the remake one, which oh yes, I still can't believe they got all of the right voice actors for that. Whoa. Just like the, the animation is so solid and so fun and uh, it and like all the music is so good. I... Man, I really need to actually, like, buy a copy of that. Yeah, see, I never played the remake. I remember being really excited when it was coming out and then thinking about exactly how hard that game was. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know if they did anything to the difficulty settings, but I do know from, from repute that DuckTales is, oh my. <laughs> you, gotta, you gotta scramble to some DuckTales. It's up there with, for in terms of beautiful design and a game that just repeatedly just kicks you in the butt, is Shovel Knight. Have you played that? I have played a little bit of Shovel Knight actually in the same weekend where I was where I played a little bit of Scrooge McDuck, uh, a little bit of the Ducktales game. Yeah, I, I got Shovel Knight for my my 3DS and love it. And everything is like snappy and precise and beautifully made, and the sounds all great and it looks great and it's beautifully designed levels. It is punishingly difficult once you get mm -hmm. past the second level, 
It's just like the minute you have a choice of, oh, do I want to go to, you know, where the Grave Knight lives or do I want to go where the Swamp Knight lives? And both of those are equally bad. And the save points are basically the beginning of the level and the end of the level. Oh, shit. Yeah. Because while you're playing, you get little checkpoints that you can come back to like midway through. But if you want to save it and leave, it puts you all the way back. So it's like unless I'm sitting there and playing for 40 minutes straight, then you're out of luck. Man, I, I played Ori and the, Bryant and the Blind Forest when it first came out, before they came out with the definitive edition that uh, mm-hmm. retooled some difficulty things. I must have sat escaping from a tree as it slowly flooded for maybe an hour before I finally got all of the different platforming timings down to make everything work like a precisely, completely oiled machine. And it felt really great, but man, I, I don't know if I could go back and do it again. And see, were that a more punishing game, you would have made all the platforming timings, landed on the other side and gotten killed by a monster, and then never be able to do the platform timings again. Oh god, luckily there was a cutscene on the other end. Like, ah, 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 Yeah. Ah. <laughs> so any other role models that you wanted to jump to? I can always rant about Skeletor at length. Oh, yes, I am all in for this. Okay, so I have I have what has essentially become a prepared monologue when it comes to Skeletor that I, I know I've done. I, one of our first episodes of I Will Fight You was about that specifically because I wanted to talk about Skeletor. Okay, well, I'm going to get comfortable. I'm going to recline my chair a little bit. And <laughs> action. So Skeletor is the bad guy from He-Man and the Masters of the Universe, which is an 80s show. It's a savage sci-fi show. Skeletor is a blue guy who has a little hood and a cowl and a loincloth and then like and the bandolier that has a skull and crossbones on it because he has a skull face it's <laughs> never and in fact his whole head is a skull and it seems to function just fine because you know magic or something <laughs> and here's the thing from the very start skeletor is he's the bad guy he's trying to get he-man and you know take over eternia in fact it's even in the opening crawl there you have to save him from the evil forces of skeletor (laughs) skeletor is of course it's an episodic show it returns back to where it was at the end of every episode so nothing really changes here except for like when they introduce a new character and they sometimes show up again. Skeletor comes up with an evil plan. Skeletor enacts the evil plan. He-Man fights somebody where they somehow always conveniently forget that he's the most powerful man in the universe. And once moved to Moon. <laughs> yeah, he does that. He's he's He-Man. And usually either Skeletor and He-Man directly fight and Skeletor loses or Skeletor's entire plan is disassembled and he just does the one animation where he puts both of his hands up in the air and fists and sometimes there's a uh, there's a staff in there and he shakes it going, He-Man! <laughs> Milking the invisible cow. Natch. <laughs> in the He-Man She-Ra Christmas special, there are these two little Earth children trying to explain Christmas to Skeletor in the most basic terms possible because they went really specific earlier when they explained the entire concept of Christianity and the nativity as well as as well as the more secular nat- notions of Christmas to a tiny floating man named Orko. But that's neither here nor there. Orko who has no legs. No legs. Because magic. He's from Trala. It's weird. (laughs) They explain to Skeletor that Christmas is a nice time where everybody gets together and they have a good time. And he's like, and then they get into fights? And this little kid's like, no, (laughs) no, they have nice things. They're, They're fun things. And he's like, fights are fun. I like fights. 
and this rocked my world. As a little kid, I loved Skeletor a lot anyway. And then when mm -hmm. I saw that, when I was older, I said, wait a minute, Skeletor likes fights. Fights are fun. Skeletor gets up every day and he has a fight. <laughs> Skeletor loves fights. Skeletor gets to do what he loves every single day, which is getting into fights. And here's the thing. Skeletor always loses. Skeletor sucks at his job. <laughs> He's terrible at this. But that doesn't seem to matter. He likes fights. Skeletor gets up in the morning, does something that he's passionate about, says, you know, it doesn't matter if I'm the best at it or not. I'm just here to have fun. And then he enjoys himself and then he goes to sleep. And then he gets up the next day and he does it again. Because he likes fights. He likes fights. Fights are fun. <laughs> oh, my God. Like you mentioned, there's no change, but there was some change later in that show when they brought in Hordak, who is actually, you know, competent. Yeah, and that was the interesting thing, because, like, they had slowly walked back on Skeletor being, like, really big threat evil guy over the course of the series. And when Hordak is introduced, whom Skeletor used to work for, they were just like, you know what? Skeletor is just, like, a fun bad guy. He's going to kill Christmas. Hordak will kill your family. It's different. Yeah. Exactly. Skeletor is just going to come in and, and try to fight you. He's a, he's a lot like the monarch at that point. Oh, yes. I was going to say, I was thinking it was uh, a little bit like, did you ever see Turtles Forever? Uh, was that the animated crossover with the 1986 Ninja Turtles and the 2005 Ninja Turtles? Yeah, yeah. And they also originally, at one point, visit the original, like, Frank Miller knockoff, like, hardcore right. turtles. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I... I I heard of that, and I saw screen caps of it, but I never saw it myself. It's surprisingly good, even as someone who never watched the 2005 Turtles. Mm -hmm. But they specifically contrast 80s Shredder with 2005 Shredder, who is an alien who had possessed a person who was the Shredder. And there's actually a line where it's like, this, this Shredder is different than your Shredder, Turtles. He's ruthless. He's deadly. And, and Michelangelo goes, he's competent. <laughs> You're, you're talking about Skeletor has awakened a lot of memories in me because I had one issue of He-Man magazine, which my dad bought because it had a preview of the Dolph Lundgren Masters of the Universe movie. Oh, my God. I need to show you the cover of this magazine. I'm just dropping it into the chat right now. Yes, please. <gasps> yes. That dinosaur is holding turbines. <laughs> It's a Tyrantosaurus and, and a, the and a Turbodactyl. Turbodactyl! And there was a pinup, which I cannot find a very good picture of. They're all little, where they were all fighting. And I think this may have pipped the Dino Riders craze by about a year. But, yeah, young Lucas's brain was blown. I want that as, like, a huge poster to put in my home. <laughs> oh, wait, I have found a good version. Hang on. Here comes the mother load. Oh, thank you, Tumblr. You remember everything. Wait, holy shit, I remember this. Yeah. Yeah, I remember this. I think we actually had the Triceratops toy, because we had, like, a ton, a ton of the action figures and thereby the little comic books. Oh, so yes. I, I think I remember this one. Yeah, and see, now I'm just looking at all the character names, and everyone remembers the guy with the neck and man-at-arms yeah. and a few others, and, and a B-Store, who was always a jerk. But now I'm looking at, like, Mosquitoor, which I had, because he had this, like, weird runny red stuff in his chest that was meant to look like blood, but wasn't. We had a Stinkor. <laughs> Did Stinkor actually stink? Or is yeah. that a stupid question? 
Oh, yeah. No, Stinkor is notorious for stinking. There's whole stories about how you can't get him to stop stinking. <laughs> and, yeah, I remember the snake people. There was a man who was a snake, but his arms were also snakes. Yeah. Which, yeah, I don't get that. Uh, and, oh, my God, there's one called Ninjor, which, first That's off. That's a... Hmm. <laughs> an Saban? as hell. Saban? Yeah. Did you... Saban, can we talk? Because I think maybe you, you stole that name? Because definitely it's the most creative original name that's ever happened. Yeah. I mean, although it's no evil Lynn. Good old evil Lynn. Which took me until I was maybe 13 to realize it was a pun on Evelyn. And not just, <laughs> she was a woman named Lynn who was really evil. I always loved that evil Lynn's toy was, had yellow skin for no reason. Like actual, it was like Simpsons skin color. Wait, what? Really? Yeah, I mean, it's in that art too. Like that's not, that's not a green wash there. Evil Lynn the doll had like Simpsons skin color. Oh, I suppose that would be how they got, a, got around her kind of stripperific costume. Or for, her like know. resembling Tila. Oh yes, there's that. Although now looking back at the, this particular Tila, Tila looks like she's like cosplaying Serpentor. Yeah, I I think we had that toy. I remember that she had this snake thing going on, but I got really confused when I finally saw He-Man because I, you know, recognized the toy first, and I was like, "Where is the snake stuff?" <laughs> Clearly, it was that it was that particular action playset. Also, um, our second dog was named Tila because there was a theme naming where my dad had to name all of his dogs with names starting with T, uh, <laughs> and because it was rough weather, he wanted someone who was like badass and tough, but it was also needed a distinctly feminine name to separate from, you know, Thumper and Tubbs and the other dogs. <laughs> and so Tila was there. And so it's like, now it's associated. That's so good. That's so good. Isn't I it? love all those dog names. Yeah, there was, uh, see, there was Thumper and Tila and Tubbs and Trouble and God, there were others, but they're slipping my mind. These are A-plus dog names. <laughs> and they were all enormous Rottweilers, so you can just picture it. And Rottweilers are s- smart, but also kind of dumb. Mm-hmm. So add a sort of a lumbering kind of goofiness to everything they do. Yes. Good dogs. <laughs> A-plus dogs. <laughs> Although, and, and when Rottweilers are very little, like when they're puppies, because we used to have a litter of puppies roughly, roughly once a year. And so we would have to like put a plywood sheet across the laundry room to the kitchen and have that just basically be the puppy zone. And because Tila was never particularly good at nursing, uh, we would have to bottle feed baby Rottweilers. Oh, no. Like, whenever you would go to a science center, there would always be that toy that was like a tube of, like, goo with a rubber outside, and you'd pick it up and it would, like, slip out of your hand. Yeah. That's what a baby Rottweiler is like. Oh, no. (laughs) Oh, no, puppy. Yep. Exactly that. I am looking up. Baby Rottweiler. I'm going to find this a representative image, and then you can appreciate this. Yes, please. Here we go. Puppy, 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 puppy. <laughs> yes, so yeah, good dog. Imagine 13 of those and attempting to bottle feed them. Yes. <laughs> yes, yes, good dogs. Yes, good I'm sorry, this is, this is, I don't have a dog right now. I want to get one when we actually have a yard, but Seattle and the surrounding areas in which I live are very, very dog friendly. And there are lots and lots and lots of people walking dogs all the time. And a commute between work and home is often me just pointing out to someone else in the car, look a dog, look at that pup. I, I'll, I'll say that I am currently living with a dog and I'm telling you that never goes away. 
because there is always a different kind of dog to the dog that you have. Yes, good dogs. Last night I was on the way to dinner and we stopped at a dog park because when you're walking past a dog park, you stop. Yes. And there was a red bone hound that was maybe four months old and so legs were too big for it. Uh, chasing a black and tan miniature dachshund that had its stick. And the hound was much faster, but the dachshund could corner. And it was amazing. (laughs) Yes, good dogs. (laughs) Thank you all for tuning in to the Lucas Talks About Dogs to any hour. This is this is us cribbing on Can I Pet Your Dog? How are you? Oh, such a good show. I've, I've asked them, how many podcasts do I need to have to get on that show? Because I have currently have three podcasts and a Dachshund. I think that qualifies me. I mean, that's got to count for something. <laughs> All right. So just before we go into the wrap-up, any other final role models you wanted to, to bring up? Well, I can definitely plug, like this book that blew my mind when I was little that was probably one of the only female role models that I really had, which is really terrible in retrospect, but something that I sort of built upon as I got older. Her name was Princess, and I never knew if I was pronouncing this right, Princess Simmerine from this book called Dealing with Dragons. It was the first, like, fairy tale fairy tale breakdown that I ever saw as a kid and it blew my freaking mind because Princess Cimmerine was a young woman who didn't want to be a princess. She wasn't a blonde, blue-eyed, giggling waif. She thought that was all really dumb and so she ran away and she ran away to where the dragons were and she was, she became the princess of a dragon named Kazool. She and Kazool just sort of hung out. She was sort of like Kazool's secretary slash hosting person. Simmerine would make buckets of cherries jubilee for Kazool and all of her friends. Then she helped Kazool become the king of dragons. There was a little part where they were like, wait a minute, shouldn't this be like a queen since you're female? And she says, no, a queen's an entirely different job. <laughs> and Simmerine was all the things that I really loved and that I started to sort of collect more of as I got older. Simmerine was strong. She was clever. She was well-read. She liked just hanging around and learning things and making a couple of friends that were also a little weird. And then she married like... A forest wizard who ruled an entire forest and was also a huge fucking nerd. (laughs) So living the dream, basically. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Best friends with dragons and also a witch who had like a Howl's Moving Castle door movie version. The book version is an entirely separate thing, but I also love the book a lot. And she could hang out with dragons whenever she wanted. She could melt wizards with soapy water, except the forest wizard, he was a cool guy. (laughs) <laughs> that's awesome see i thought you were leading up to talking about the paper bag princess the way you were lining up that particular it's a very similar story really? except instead of a picture book these are sort of middle grade novels there's actually four of them but the first one is the best one and they were out of print for a really long time so they're one of the books that i actually like rescued from my parents sort of basement library and brought across the country with me along with our scary stories to tell in the darks books that have the original illustrations oh nice all right anyway well, i am mindful of the time so we should probably wrap this up so if people wanted to find your stuff on the internet where would they go so to find me personally, I am at Annie'sard, which is my handle just about everywhere. And that's Annie, A-N-N-I-E, and then Z-A-R-D, because Charizard is the best. Mm-hmm. Although I, I have some other favorites that he has to share with now, like Gagot <laughs> and Noivern. Annie'sard, like Charizard, that is, I'm mostly on Twitter and Tumblr, though I've recently joined Instagram, which is right. a weird and new thing. So come look at pictures of my cats. Good. That's what Instagram is for. 
That's what I'm discovering. <laughs> and I, I am of the aforementioned Gem Jam. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter, Tumblr, YouTube, uh, iTunes, wherever you find that. Our Tumblr, our main Tumblr is thegemjam.tumblr.com. We're also on Twitter at gemjamcast, and that's also where we tend to host and talk about our I Will Fight You episodes, too. Though I've, I Will Fight You does have a separate RSS feed. I said this to Kit, but I'll say it to you as well. I've really enjoyed the Gem Jam purely because it's reminded me exactly how much I remember about Gem. Even if at the time I was, oh, no, I don't want to watch this show. I'm just watching it to make sure to wait until Transformers comes on. <laughs> yeah, I remembered a lot. Like, I remembered Lena Lerner. I remembered the song from Shangri-La. The entirety of the Roxy, uh, Roxy Rumble. That's incredible. Yeah, and there's, yeah, people in Philadelphia will throw a riot if you don't give them enough free hot dogs. <laughs> True story. These are these are the important lessons we learn about literacy. Because <laughs> we can open a book and open up our minds. Yeah. All right, Annie. Well, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, absolutely. This was super fun. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much to Annie Creighton for her time. While the idea for this drink came to me very quickly, trying to come up with a specific name that suits the drink and is also relevant to the episode has been difficult. This is partially due to the fact that Annie has sent what may be the greatest description of flavors that anyone has ever done in the lead up to this podcast. I read verbatim. I'm not a huge drinker. I tend to be the person who nurses a glass of wine or a beer every now and again. I like a good shandy, and I'm still attached to Kirin Ichiban on tap. Though I'd likely gravitate towards something non-alcoholic. To that end, I've always liked strawberry flavors and banana flavors, though not bananas themselves, and mango flavors, and I absolutely despise cherry flavors. Drinks that are overly sweet are my bag. I tend to like my fruit flavors tempered with something slightly bitter, like black iced tea. With a description like that, I knew the pressure was on. So I combined several cocktail recipes into a new drink. I could have named it something trivial like the Cimmerine or the Turbodactyl, but frankly, it's the Annie Creighton special. And such shall it be. First things first, brew a cup of very strong black tea. Earl Grey, hot, preferably. I found the best way to do this was to take a cup of boiling water, drop in a tea bag, and leave it in the fridge for 10 minutes. In a shaker full of ice, combine half an ounce of lemon juice, half an ounce of apricot brandy, one and a quarter ounces of botanical gin, one and a quarter ounces of honey mixture, which you make by mixing together equal parts of honey and boiling water until you have a smooth liquid. Add your black tea to the shaker, and shake very carefully. Your shaker will probably be very full at this point. Strain into a cocktail glass and serve. It's tougher than the Tuffies and sharper than the Sharpies. And if you're ever given the option, be a dinosaur. Enjoy.
The Math of You is recorded in Leichhardt, New South Wales, Australia, and is written, hosted, and edited by yours truly, Lucas Brown. New episodes are released every Wednesday, and if you'd like to be a guest on The Math of You, send an email to themathofyou at gmail.com and tell us what you'd like to talk about. You can follow the show at The Math of You on Twitter, and you can follow my wacky adventures at Lokified, L-O-K-I-F-I-E-D, on Twitter and Instagram, or Lokified82 on Snapchat. Fair warning, my Snapchat is entirely pictures of my dog, pictures of my cats, and things I'm about to eat. If you have a few dollars kicking around and want to directly support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash Lokified and chip in as little as a dollar per month. You can get great rewards like early access to shows, physical media, and really, I would just appreciate it a whole lot. If you like the show, you can hop on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. I'll read out any reviews on the show, and I'll give you a little shout-out. Won't that be nice? If you like any of the songs used on The Math of You in the past 16 episodes, you can head over to bit.ly slash themathofyou with capital letters at the beginning of each word. There you'll find a Spotify playlist of every song that I've used for an intro, an outro, or under something like this, including this one. It's Jolene by Cake. They just said Jolene. Next week, my guest will be Joe Hunter, artist on Radical Guardian Skater X, among other things, to talk about how Power Rangers RPM was the gritty reboot we all didn't know we needed. Join me, won't you? This is a very good episode for images in the chat. Yeah, it's, it's real good radio. I was going to say, the only other time I've done that is when I had Rosie Fletcher on, and she didn't believe me that there was a gothic Lolita Pokemon. Yeah. And so I had to send her the picture, and she her response was just, oh dear. <laughs> yeah, that is the correct response. Yeah. Here is, I'm sending yeah. through the puppy. All right, well, I have a specific question for you, Annie. Okay. Because normally I just have like, oh, so what did you do today? Or stuff like that. But I have a, yeah, I have a specific question that I'd like to know that is tailored to your interests. Go on. I would like to know what, in your opinion, anime has the best slash most representative title music. Anime, huh? Yeah, I know. I, I hear it's a thing you like. Mm-hmm. I have been I known to dabble in the animes. <laughs> Uh, hmm, most representative in, in what definition are we using here? Okay, well, I could just say best, and that's just like, you know, if on its own devices, when heard is like, yes, that is an awesome thing. Mm-hmm. But when I mean representative, I mean how, well, what is, 
what song best represents the content of the show you're about to watch. Okay, like, no question, though, the theme for Paranoia Agent. Because it's weird, it's creepy, it's unsettling, it's got all these visuals of uh, of people laughing while apocalypses happen in the background. <laughs> Apocalypses? Apocalypse-I? Apocalypses, I think, yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna go with Apocalypses. And the thing is, I don't, I'm actually not familiar with uh, Paranoia Agent, so it, well, is it actually about apocalypses and people laughing? Oh man, it's real weird. Like... Like, Jake Mason is going to be, is doing a podcast called Explain Me in Anime, and that's the one yep. that I'm probably going to pick to uh, explain <laughs> to him because it is so weird. So, have you ever heard of Satoshi Kon? I have not. So, he is a director, uh, and he also was a mangaka as well, who was really into um, all of his films, uh, and most of it was filmography, was really interested in unreliable narrators, in playing with animation as a medium to show this, uh, to really play with it and show just different perceptions of reality. Um, And so one of his big things was unreliable narrators and using the medium in a way that is particular to that medium. Like, he wrote this manga called Opus about a guy who worked on a manga that uh, he couldn't finish, and then he fell into the manga, and, like, then he... Where he began writing a manga about a manga that he couldn't finish, (laughs) where he then felt... I can see how this goes. Oh, no, he never... Satoshi Kon never actually finished Opus. There's this extra chapter where, like, the characters... So the writer character and the characters from the manga that he wrote come out of the manga and be like, why aren't you finishing this? (laughs) And then he died... (laughs) <laughs> he died because he had a heart attack in like his 50s like, wait, wait, I, I, IRL died or, or like the care yeah he passed away like maybe about five years ago and it was this it's awful because all of his films are really incredible and like uh, like like a lot of people compared um, uh, Inception to a show called uh, to an anime he did called Paprika which is sort of another sort of playing with dream logic thing um, and you may have seen like Tumblr posts about that but like so Paranoia Agent is, at its core, its theme is escapism, but it's about uh, this mystery surrounding this young woman, this animator, who is attacked one night by a young man wearing, uh, wearing gold rollerblades and, and wielding this uh, broken bat, this askew that's also golden. Uh, in, okay. the, in the anime, he's called Shonen Bat, which is Boy Bat Boy. Uh, but in the dub, they call him Little Slugger, which is oh uh, no, magnifique. Oh no, <laughs> and oh, it's about beautiful. like eat, and it's all about different people that want to escape, that want to completely get away from all of their problems without having to face them, and they get attacked by Little Slugger, and it's this huge, weird, reality-defying mystery where everything starts to warp around this because like she created this guy in her own head, and now he's real, and it's. Bizarre, and so's the theme song. <laughs> Dare I ask how it goes? <laughs> wow, I don't even know. Is is it representable with the human voice? I don't remember the words, but it's like I my and there's like there's like chirping in the background too for no good reason it's like 
Man, you should like pull it up and watch just the opening theme because it is weird as heck. All right, I'm I'm giving this a shot. Hang on. Do the thing. Do the thing. All right. Agent. Da, 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 da. Go. Opening. One of the most disconcerting haunting openings of all time. Oh, this should be fun. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right, here it goes. <laughs> yeah, oh, there's the chirping. You're right. Yeah. And people laughing. Mm-hmm, Josh mm-hmm. Storm. Also, there's this really weird superimposing of some, a smaller versions of someone's face inside their own face. Yeah. And that's that is off-putting. Yeah. Oh, ah! <laughs> a strange pig man is laughing and staring at me. Yep. just keeps happening. Mm-hmm. This is like on The Simpsons where Homer turns on the TV and it's just some guy pointing and laughing and calling him a stupid idiot. Yep. This is a, Oh my god. <laughs> and now we've got fast motion that people are kind of surfing on? Yeah. Like the like the guy is uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Why is he on Tokyo Tower? Because Tokyo what? Tower always explodes, obviously. <laughs> ah. And now there's the kid that was an old lady from Hell's <laughs> Moving Castle. Yeah. And a big fat party animal. Mm-hmm. And... Oh, here comes Bat Boy. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> and then inexplicably an old man on the moon. Yeah. But, you know, but... it, no one ever really explains that old man. <laughs> and then it's Bat Boy on a Windows 95 desktop. Mm-hmm. And then it's over. Yeah. Oh my god, I don't know how I'm going to follow that. I just wanted to lead in and talk about which of the Attack on Titan themes is better, but this was... Oh, this has surpassed my wildest dreams. <laughs> anyway, the answer is the first one, but... <laughs> <No>. <laughs> ah, so, 